Well, it is good to be back in the pulpit, um, and I invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans, where we will pick back in our series through the book of Romans that we uh, took a pause on over last month. We in Romans chapter 2, my goal is to get us through verse 16. <clears throat> You can hear the confidence in that right there. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the righteous judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, or their conscience also bears witness, with their, uh, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus." In the Old Testament, the king of Israel, David, committed a grievous sin against the Lord. If you've grown up in church, you're probably familiar with this story that I'm about to, to share about David and him committing adultery with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And uh, in that story, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And he needs to cover his tracks. And in order to cover his sin, he decides to call Uriah and send him onto the front lines of the battlefield. But he'd given instructions to those uh, in his platoon or in his, his, his group that when they go out on the front lines that they are to withdraw from him and leave him out to die. And in doing so, David successfully, at least in his mind, thought, he had covered his sin. Well, after these horrible acts, 
the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet of the Lord. And Nathan came and brought David a message. And he began to tell David a story about two individuals. There was a rich man and, and there was a poor man. And he, and he said the rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He had bought it, he had brought it up and, and grew up with him and his children. It was used to eat, used to eat of its morsels, of his morsels, drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man. The rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. As David was hearing this message, he becomes infuriated. And he says, in, in, in utter rage, he declares, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this thing deserves to die. And Nathan says, You've spoken well. And David, you are that man. Nathan flipped the table, flipped the script on David. Got David to admit his own hypocrisy and to see his presumption upon the Lord that somehow, even though you're a king, you, you think you will be exempt from the judgment of God. That you would be able to cover your sin and that you would not have to repent. Well, in the same way, here in the book of Romans, Paul is doing something very similar. In chapter 1, Paul has expounded upon the idolatry and sinful nature of humanity. He's, he's gone into great details of the immorality of humanity. And he concludes in, in chapter 1, verses 8, 28 through 32, to say that God has given humanity up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And you see at the end in verse 32, and those who practice such things deserve to die. Sounds very similar to what David said. And as Paul is writing this, in the church in Rome, there was a, a mixed congregation. It was predominantly uh, non-Jewish. This is Rome after all, but there would have been a, a Jewish cluster in this church. And no doubt, some of those who had been raised up in Judaism would have been chapter 1 saying, Amen, brother, preach it. Yes, those, those people who do those things, they deserve to die. Well, like Nathan, Paul sets up his Jewish audience to unknowingly admit their own guilt. Before exposing their hypocrisy and presumption, he lists these, these sins and gets them to kind of egg on and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, because you do the very same things. See, for many Jews, they believe that God would not judge them for their sins, at least at the same severity that, that God would judge the surrounding nations. They thought that they were they were privileged, that they were beyond such strict judgment. 
And this is because they were the covenant people of God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament story, God made a covenant with Abraham and said, all your offspring, I will make a covenant with them. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. I'm going to supply land for them. I'm going to bless them, and they're going to fill the earth and rule. And so because they had this covenant, they, they, they saw themselves as the special people of God, and in some ways they were. But furthermore, because they didn't explicitly commit false worship, they didn't bow down to idols and, 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 and chisel something out of wood and, and call it a god and bow down to it, but rather they would observe the food laws that God had given in the Old Testament. They, they obeyed, in some sense, the Sabbath day, and they would circumcise their children. And for those primary reasons, they began to believe that they were exempt from God's righteous standard. And not only that, that they were actually superior to others. And this attitude was likely what Paul would encounter when he would go from town to town and he would enter the synagogue and he would begin to preach. And, and likely what we have here in the book of Romans is a summation of, of what Paul would go in and preach. And I can imagine him coming in and, and talking about the sin of humanity and, and he's got people nodding their heads, amen, brother, and he's got them. And, and he leans in. And he says, I've seen all the amens, therefore you would admit that you're guilty as well. If you remember in the book of Acts, there'd be people that are they're chiming in, and then there would be that point where, uh-oh, we're not with this, brother. <laughs> you can see, oh, you were you setting us up the whole time. And so Paul challenge often was to convince his fellow Jews that they needed to admit their guilt, turn from their sins, and trust in Jesus. After doing that, he would offer them hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I would say that we face a similar challenge here in the church in America. To convince Christians, and I, and I use that term very loosely in a maybe more sociological sense, cultural Christians, to get them to admit that they're sinners that they need to turn and trust Christ. I mean, it'll happen even in this neighborhood. People who don't really go to church, but they have some loose connection with Christianity. And you begin to share with them, and they say, oh, I'm good. I, I was baptized, or I walked down the aisle, or my mama, she goes to church, or I pray, or I got a Bible. And they'll list all these things that some, somehow means that they're exempt from everything that's going on in their life. Sometimes it's a person who's on a membership role. My role is down at, at such and such church, at Oak Park Baptist Church. It's funny, I sometimes get references from, from Christian schools in the area, from people, I have no idea who they are, but they're a member at Oak Park Baptist Church apparently. And, and, and I don't know. Might even be a deacon or an elder. They've served in some capacity in, in some way, and I've, I've had that been told to me sometime. I was an elder at such and such church, or I was a deacon as if to just shut down the conversation, I don't need Jesus. It's all, the proof's in the pudding. I was once talking with a buddy of mine in, um, in Southern California when we lived out there, and he had a, he'd flown in, uh, I don't know where he was flying, but he was in Birmingham, Alabama, and he struck up a conversation with a, a, a man in the airport and began to share the gospel, and the man said, brother, I'm from Alabama. As if, oh, okay, I guess you don't need Jesus. The same thing goes on. Same exact 
thing. And what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 2, yes, is the sin of hypocrisy. But I want us to see something a little more subtle, but very dangerous. Paul is addressing the sin of presuming upon God's grace. The sin of presumption. And this presumption is based on some perceived privilege we have. Whether real or imagined. And this presumption upon God's grace results in a refusal to repent of one's sins and trust in Jesus. And in response to this presumptive arrogance, you may say, Paul explains that God's judgment is impartial. He doesn't show favoritism. His judgment's objective. And whatever perceived privilege you think you have or role, that's not going to get you anywhere on the day of judgment. See, on that day, Paul is going to explain that God's judgment, and these are my points, God's judgment accords with righteousness, number one. Number two, God's judgment accords with works, and bear with me, we'll see what that means. And number three, God's judgment accords with the gospel. Twice in verses one through five, we see how Paul highlights God's justice or righteousness to judge sinful humanity. The first is found in, in verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The judgment of God is right, is what he's saying. It's just. It's not arbitrary. It's not, oh, he, he, he gives some people a, a buy. No, he judges according to truth. He judges according to righteousness. And, 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 and men and women can come and present themselves one way, but the judgment of God will judge things as they really are. That's what he gets to in verse 16. God judges the secrets of men. And so, like David, you might think you're covering your sin. And you're, you're, you've got it made, you, you've got a title, or you've got a role, or, or, or you do certain things that you think... Yep, this, this covers me. Well, Paul says that's not how God's judgment works. It's according to truth. He says it again in verse 5. He says, on that day, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see that righteousness is spoken of. This means that God is good, and he's going to do what is right. He's going to have an objective standard that, that, that makes everybody on the same playing field, no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've come from. And the situation, particularly here in chapter 2, that Paul's addressing concerns Jews who presume upon God's grace and mercy, thinking that he will just overlook their sins. Maybe you've talked to people like that before. Yeah, but I think God's merciful. That's true, he is. But you can't presume upon God's grace and say, well, I'll just then bank on him just giving me a pass. I talk to people like that all the time. And that was what was going on. Furthermore, they thought because of their ethnicity and religious upbringing that they would get this path. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You know those who do such things deserve to die. That's why you'll be without excuse on that day. 
Now, is Paul saying here when he says, oh man, every one of you who judges, is he critiquing them because they're judging? You've heard people say, you know, do not judge lest you be judged. That's a, maybe the most popular verse now. It used to be probably John 3, 16, but our culture's changed. That's, that's our favorite verse. So as Paul's saying, it's wrong. The, the issue is you're judging. You're saying certain sins are wrong. That's not what he's saying. After all, he's judging people in this passage. And he's done that in all through chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and he's continuing to do so. No, the issue that he's addressing is a failure to see your sin as you condemn the same things in others. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, because he's dealt with some things in here, different forms of immorality. Maybe you don't murder, but you're hateful to people. You do the same things. Jesus said that. Oh, you, know, you, you, say, you hear the law says you shall not murder, but I tell you if you hate your brother, you've murdered in your heart. Or the law says you shall not commit adultery. Well, you might not have physically done that, but if you've lusted after an individual in your heart, you've committed adultery. He says you do the same things. And you think because yours doesn't manifest itself exactly like those people on the outside, those pagans, well, you're going to get some pass because yours is just a little more sophisticated. You're just a little better at hiding it and covering it. And you've got privilege, and, 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 you, and you, you're, you're going to get a pass. No, that's not how this works. He, that's, that presumption is what he's going after. And he says, when you make judgments, when you sit on your, your couch and you watch the things that happen on the news, and you, and you mock and you ridicule those people who rightly deserve to be judged at times, but you fail to see that, that, that you do the same things, you have no excuse. Follow Paul's logic with me. In verse 2, he grants the premise that God's judgment is right. He's actually saying you, you rightly discern that God will judge these things. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. What things is he talking about? Chapter 1, 18 through 32 might particularly look in verses 29 through 31, where he gives this vice list, just summarizing the great characteristics of humanity. <laughs> they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. You hear that, children? You do the same things. Foolish, faithless, heartless. Point here is, is as you say, yep, 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 God deserves that. Those people who do those things deserve to die. By your own words, you condemn yourself. That's what he's saying. If you don't think you need to repent of these things. And so he begins to ask them two questions. Okay, so how do you think this is going to work? Verse three Do you think then you're going to escape the judgment of God if you practice these things? And the answer should be no. No, no way I'll escape the judgment of God if I live a life that's characteristic of those things. 
So Paul then ex- answers an, or poses another question exposing their faulty thinking. Okay, is it, verse, is it verse 4? Do you presume, there it is, on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and, and patience, which is meant to lead you to repentance? I don't want us to skip over these verses too quickly. We learn something about our righteous God. He's rich. He's wealthy. And particularly what he's wealthy and rich in and what he's lavishing people with is kindness. Very stark difference to how we usually view people who are trapped in sin. Do we respond with kindness, forbearance, and patience, or are we fed up with them and say, well, if you were like me, you wouldn't do that? I'm guilty. (laughs) I'm guilty. I'm pretty sure we all are. I mean, if everybody was like me, we wouldn't have any problems, right? Of course not. This would be a mess. This would be a mess. But we, in the moment, think like that. And it shows up in the way we treat people. God's rich in kindness. In this case, to the Jews, it was his kindness to them that he entered a covenant with them. He redeemed them from from Egypt, and and he provided them with a land, and, and he gave them food and provision. But the Jews took those blessings of God and they interpreted them as God's ambivalence towards their sin. Well, we must be privileged and and he must not have a problem with this because he's provided us with all these things. When I was in high school, this is B.C., what I mean by B.C., before Christ, so there's all my qualification. In high school, I cheated a lot especially in Spanish class. I remember I had geometry before Spanish, and I had that one down. I I didn't have to cheat as much. So I had to really put effort in for Spanish. So in geometry, I would get my 8.5 by 11, and I would copy all the paradigms that I was going to be tested or quizzed on, and I would proceed to put it upside down under my shirt and staple it. And the goal was so that when I would sit at my desk, I could just start rolling my shirt, and I had the answers just rolling on my belly. Well, one day, I mean, it worked, sort of. One day, my geometry teacher said, well, I think I said, hey, can I borrow your stapler? And, uh, and, she, and she's like, okay. And then she comes over and watches me staple my shirt and a piece of paper. And she said, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. <laughs> I don't know what I said. And then she said, lift up your shirt. And then, of course, Spanish paradigms on, the, on, my, on my, bottom of my shirt. She rips it off, and I'm thinking, I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm, mom and dad are going to find out. Mom and dad, if you're listening, there you go, you found out. Um, and I remember she was kind to me. And she said, I don't ever want to see you doing this again. I'm not going to report you, and uh, you need to start studying. And she goes, if I find out, I'm going to go say something. Now, obviously, I went and I started to study from that point on, and and I did really well at school. No. (laughs) What I did is I rushed to my locker and copied everything I could remember really quickly, and I stapled it, and I went on and I did it. What was the purpose of her kindness towards me? So that I would do what I did? Ignore it? 
No, it was so that I would stop. How has God shown his kindness and patience to you? Are you mindful of how he's lavished his riches upon you? How he's given you life and breath? I mean, if we really begin to think, I, I, I got a lot of stories in my life. I'm like, I should be dead. I should be dead. Yeah, he was gracious, but in those seasons, I, I interpret that as, I'm fine. Obviously, the Lord's blessing my life. He's given you a church where his word is taught. Hope you have friends and your godly relationships, parents who've raised you up in the gospel, maybe. He's providing you with food and shelter. So the question for us is, do you suppose he's giving you these things because you don't need to repent? That you've given a, a pass? No, it's actually his kindness so that will lead us to greater repentance. At the end of the day, God's judgment falls upon all who are hard in heart. You see that in verse 5? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves. This is what he says. Those who cover their sins and begin to trust in their privileges, they think they're storing up reward. But Paul says, no, you're, you're storing up wrath. Because God will judge according to righteousness, not according to perceived privilege. So on that day, it's not going to matter, brothers and sisters, if you've grown up in the church or have Christian parents, or that you were a deacon or an elder, or even a Sunday school teacher, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope, if you have not confessed what we're saying, nothing but the blood, and that's not just merely words on your lips on a, on a song, but that is the reflection of your heart, if that is not the case, you will likewise perish with the rest of humanity. Paul continues to, after bringing up the, the day of judgment, how, how's this going to go down? Well, this judgment's going to accord with works, he says. This is in verses 6 through 11. And here we learn that God's righteous judgment, in some manner, is going to take our works into consideration. Now, at first glance, you might be getting a little squirmy. Hey, 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 um, I thought this was a, a Protestant church. I thought we were a Baptist church, justification by faith alone, right? Amen, I do believe that. But here, Paul says, works. Is Paul, like, schizophrenic or something? Is he inconsistent? I mean, here he says, he will render, verse 6, each according to his works. You go to verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers who will be justified. So it's the doers who are justified, Paul. Oh, uh, but what about in chapter 3, verse 20, you say that by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Are you crazy, Paul? I don't think so. Or in chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Look at verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, assuming he wasn't, if he was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are counted as, not as a gift, but as his due. I mean, you would earn your salvation. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Paul, what, what are you doing here? This sounds like you're just speaking out of both sides of your mouth. So is he confused? Is he inconsistent? Has he relapsed into his old ways of Judaism? Not at all. He's actually not saying anything different than what Jesus said. Jesus in Matthew 12 speaks of a, of a good tree will bear good fruit. And a dead tree or a bad tree will bear bad fruit. You won't have a, a bad tree producing bad fruit and a, and a healthy tree. You won't have a bad tree producing good fruit. And you won't have a healthy tree producing bad fruit. He says you'll see the fruit and you'll be able to tell the nature of the tree. Or when James, what we read at the pastoral prayer time, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith, but you have no works. <laughs> what good is that? I'll show you my faith by my works. And so it's not works that justify, it's a faith that works that justifies. Do you see that? It's a genuine faith that reflects in a change of life. You heard that in Ethan's testimony. Yeah, I believed, I assented with my, my, my lips. But it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that I began to have a heart change. And now I've seen all this change in my life. What Paul says here in Romans 2, Romans 2 accords with Scripture. Genuine faith will express itself in obedience. But not a perfect obedience, but obedience. The, like I, I like to say, the video of the Christian life will be reflected in one who follows Jesus. We can all get a snapshot of our life and say, whoa, a David moment, right? We can see snapshots where, well, that, that, that brother or that sister or me, I don't look like a Christian there. But the video of our life, the consistency of our life should reflect the love and, and following of Jesus. And so on that day of judgment, he says in verse 6, back in Romans 2, God will render to each one according to his works. Well, what are these works that he's referring to? Well, let's look at verse 7. He says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, you need to think here a little broadly. Our Bible translations break up the chapters for us, but this is one continuing thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2. We need to have chapter 1 still in mind. These categories, glory, honor, and immortality, is what he spoke of in chapter 1. Sinful humanity, what do they exchange? The glory of God. What do they exchange it for? Mortality. Corruptibility. What do they not do? They do not honor God. You see that in verses 23 and 21 of chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, verse 7, what does the genuine believer do? He seeks the glory of God. He seeks to honor God, and he seeks what is immortal. He seeks the things that last. This is a genuine heart. Their life is, is for the glory of God, honoring God, living for the kingdom of God. But the unbeliever, the idolater of chapter 1, no, rejects the glory of God, does not honor God, and, and seeks not the things that last, but the things of this earth. And worships them. This is a matter of worship. What's genuine faith look like? It looks like worship. It looks like a love for the Savior that's evident. But the unrepentant, verse 8, they don't seek God. Rather, what, what do they seek? 
They are self-seeking. You see that? Chapter 2, verse 8. They are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And as a result, there will be wrath and fury. Go back to chapter 1, verse 18. What does the idolater do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 8. They do not obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness. Do you see the video of their life? They're, they're not pursuing the Lord. They don't love the Lord. And that will become evident. And so what Paul is saying on that day, he will render to each one and who have sought me. Who knows me? Who's worshipped me? Who's loved me? And that'll be evident in the things that you pursued. And that won't matter, he says, this, for, for whether you're a Jew or all a Greek. You see, he says that twice in verses 6 through 11. And why is that? For verse 11, for God shows no partiality. doesn't matter who you are. And so God will repay accordingly, regardless if you're a Jew or Greek, American or Arab, middle class or lower class, male or female. None of those categories will get you anywhere on the day of judgment. Why? Because God shows no partiality. Lastly, God's judgment accords with the gospel. This is good news. This is good news, and he's, he's, he's expanding this more. But he gets a little more specific with the Jews. So what's your perceived privilege you think is going to get you an exemption? And this is what the Jew might have said. Well, we have the law. We have the books of Moses. We have the, what, what we would say, well, we have the Bible. I remember before becoming a Christian, I grew up in church, but I'd say the Bible's true. I had a, an assent to it mentally, and I thought, well, I believe that, and I say it's true, and I don't think it has error, therefore I'm covered. And I literally thought that at times. When I was convicted by my sin, I'd say, well, I'm not like those people who don't even acknowledge the Bible. I at least acknowledge the Bible, and I justify myself. And so this is kind of what Paul is addressing here. He explains further that our perceived privileges will, will not avail us anything on the day of judgment because the only thing that will matter is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? That's what he's going to get at. And to do that, he tackles the privilege of the Jews, namely that they were given the law or the word of God. Look in verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law, think of pagans, Gentiles, non-Jews, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So he's setting a, a standard. They're going to be judged whether they have the law or not. Jew would have said, yeah, that's right. But then he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So you who have the word of God, you're not going to be exempt either. That's just going to be the instrument by which you're judged by. And he says, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, and that's a jab at them who just sit, and that should be awakening to any of us this morning who just hear and receive, but it never changes. That's not just because you hear the word doesn't mean you're justified before God. You hear with faith, and, and that faith obeys. 
It's the doers of the law who will be justified, he says. And Paul here proceeds to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. He uses the unbelieving world, the, the Gentile pagan, the people that everybody would say, yeah, they deserve to go to hell. He says, all right, let's just start with them. And he says, yes, they will perish even though that they haven't had the privilege you've had by giving, having been given the word of God. They will perish. He says, but they actually do in some sense have knowledge of the word of God. At some level, he, he, he says, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What, what, what is he talking about here? Paul's talking about the fact that every person who's ever been born is made in the image of God. And because we've been made in the image of God, we all have in our DNA, in our fabric of our being, some moral compass. Some acknowledgement that, that he is our creator and we are accountable to him. And he says, the reason you know that is because sometimes they obey God's law. They know they should not murder and therefore they don't murder. And that's good news, right? Not everybody murders. <laughs> sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Not everybody steals, not everybody lies, but sometimes they do. And when they do, their conscience convicts them at some level and therefore, it accuses them at times, and it excuses them at times, which lets them know that they are, more, they, are, they are battling within their heart and in their conscience at some standard of morality. And Paul says that is built into every human being so that no one will be without excuse. That's back to Romans 1. So what's Paul's point? He says, here's his point. If those who do not have the same privileges as you do, i.e., have the word of God, if they will still be judged for their sins, how much more will you be judged? Oh, so the privileges actually don't give me a pass. They give me less of an excuse. That's what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, there are great privileges to have knowledge of the Word of God, to have knowledge of the things of the Lord. It's a great privilege to be in the church, to be born of Christian parents if you have, to hear the Word taught, to go into a Sunday school where the Bible's expounded, to, to listen on a Sunday morning where, where songs are sung that teach you the, the truths of Scripture. To be in leadership is a great privilege to live in America where we're free to, to worship and, and, and you can go to a store and buy resources that teach you more and more and you can listen freely to great preachers and teachers and, and we have so much material and yet so many will say, well, that's why we will be exempt. No, far, far from that. That's why we'll be judged if we do not heed Privilege is not an exemption for your sin. Rather, your privilege gives you a greater awareness of your sin and your need for Christ. This is why James says in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers. Well, well, why? Because in teaching you will incur a greater judgment. Because if you're a teacher, 
I'm talking to myself right here. You're a preacher, you're teaching, you're in the Word more than most people. That doesn't give you a pass. You know better. And you think you cannot repent of your sin? You can practice the same things as you condemn and preach in others? You think you'll get a pass, Chase? No. Praise God that we have the Lord Jesus Christ. See, on that day, he will judge the secrets of men. How? According to my gospel, Paul says. At the end of the day, what's the only thing that will give you a pass? If you know and love Jesus Christ. That's it. So, brothers and sisters, for all various age groups, different privileges in this sense, sitting around this room, at the end of the day, the righteous judgment of God puts us all on a level playing field. And if we do not know Christ, we will have no life apart from Him. There will only be wrath and fury. Last night I was sharing with three of my children, ones who cognitively can understand. I was working through this passage and I began to explain how this applied to us as a family. And I said to them, you're my children. I want you to know you've got great blessing because mommy and daddy take you to church and we, we talk to you about these things and, and we pray with you and, and you memorize scripture and, and, and all these things that I want you to know that that means you don't, you don't have any excuse not to trust Jesus because you know. Yes, sometimes we talk about maybe your, your teammates on your soccer team or people in the neighborhood who need Jesus, who don't have the uh, uh, mommies and daddies who take them to church, but you do. And you're not going to be able to ride a mommy and daddy's coattails into the kingdom of God. I didn't say it exactly like that, but I'm saying that to you young people. You're going to have to believe, and you're going to have to repent of your sins and trust, because this great privilege that you have will give you no excuse on that day. I told them, and just because Daddy is one of the pastors and he preaches and teaches on Sunday doesn't mean I get a pass either. I must obey, and I must turn from my sin, and I must trust Christ. And this goes for all of us. And so I plead with you. What is it that you're trusting in? What is it that you rely on? If it's not Jesus Christ and Him alone, there is no hope, no matter what your role is and whatever privilege you may think you have or we have. And so if you're, if you're saying, I've, I've never trusted Jesus, not like what this text is talking about. We're going to sing. And after the service, I, I'm always standing under this, this screen, my left, your right. You can come find me. And I want to talk to you about how you can know Jesus Christ, okay? Let's pray. Father, Lord, you've lavished us with your grace. You have been kind and merciful to us. Lord, we're not left in darkness. Lord, we're, we're hearing the word right now. We've sung it. We've heard it read. We've, we've seen the waters of baptism stirred. Lord, you, you, have, you have reached out to us, and may it not be that any would ever attend here and never eat of the meal that has been served to us and know 
the grace and love that is yours toward us in Christ. Lord, if anyone here does not know you, I pray that they would not harden their heart, but Lord, they would soften their heart and they would be humble and they would say, I need you. They would call upon your name. They would believe in their heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. They would, they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that means he's the boss of my life. It's the end of me. Lord, that's my prayer for them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and let's sing.